peace be to you. Henry the Cardinal of Evil. Let us begin with a question. Hello everyone and welcome to Curiously Catholic, the Evangelium podcast, sharing in the mission to light the fire of Christ in the hearts of Catholics by sharing the truth of our faith in a compelling manner. In this podcast, we are going to pick the brains of Catholic enthusiasts to try and get to the bottom of how to be truly Catholic in these contemporary times. My name is Dominic Malgeri, and we have the honor of being joined by uh, Dr. Larry Chap. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, how do you prefer being pref- uh, referred to, like doctor or professor or chap? Uh, uh, how about, uh, just how about Larry? Okay, Larry. It's just uh, when I found out you yeah. were a professor, I was like, oh. That's that's impressive. Uh, so yeah, well, I, I don't mean to be overly familiar, but everybody calls me Larry, and I don't I don't stand on titles, so that that's fine by me. Oh, very good, very good. So uh, as we crack on, um, as we start every podcast, getting to know the people I'm talking to, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? So, uh, what what do you do? What work do you do? And uh, maybe a bit about your faith. Were you a cradle or a, a Catholic or a convert? I'm a cradle Catholic. I was born in the American Midwest in the American agricultural state of Nebraska, a very rural area. And I, I, I grew up uh, 1960s, 1970s kind of Catholic, very sort of lukewarm, and then went through a period where I rejected my faith as a teenager and embraced a kind of evangelical, born-again Protestantism like so many people were doing in the 70s. Then grew dissatisfied with that intellectually realized that there wasn't a whole lot of there there. And uh, since I was uh, an intellectual nerd and a bit of a library rat, I, I just I sort of read my way back into the Catholic faith. Ended up going to the seminary for many years and uh, studied theology and philosophy there. Decided not to be a priest. Went on to get my doctorate in theology. Decided I wanted to pursue a, an academic career in theology. Got my doctorate at Fordham University in New York City where I specialized in the theology of someone your viewers may or may not have heard of, a Swiss Catholic theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, friend of Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, friend of John Paul II. Uh, And uh, I did my dissertation on his theology of revelation. I then taught for 20 years at a small Catholic university in eastern Pennsylvania called DeSales University. And I was very happy, primarily teaching undergraduates and then about nine years ago now, in 2013, my wife and I and a, a former student of ours named John Gribowicz, who is now a priest, decided to start a Catholic worker farm. So I, uh, I retired from teaching and we bought a little 12 acre, a little tiny 12 acre farm where we raise sheep and grow vegetables and pigs and chickens and whatnot. And, uh, and we were inspired by the vision of Dorothy Day and Peter Moore and the founders of the Catholic worker movement. And if your viewers don't know who they are, there are two individuals who uh, in the, basically in the early 1930s started a social justice movement essentially within the Catholic Church that focused on mm-hmm. soup kitchens and emergency shelters for the poor. And then Peter Morin's vision was to have a farm so that people could get back to the land, relearn basic skills, recharge their batteries through the rhythms of nature to grow food for the poor. And we, uh, we really liked Peter Morin's vision, so we started our Catholic Worker Farm, and that's what we do. Mm. And then starting about two years ago, I started my blog, gaudiumatspez22.com, uh, to occupy a certain space that I saw was being occupied by radical traditionalists. 
and uh, did not like what I was seeing from the radical traditionalists and decided that the, uh, the legacy and the tradition of, uh, of certain theologians called Resourcement Theologians and the better impulses of the Second Vatican Council needed to be defended. And that's why I started uh, the blog. And uh, it sort of caught on. The blog's got a little bit viral, sort of a, in a small pond, but viral in a small pond. And now here I am. I've gotten all these requests for podcasts, and, and so I'm happy to be here. Mm. That's who I am, in a well, nutshell. Well, in very interesting, and uh, I think the, you know, there's a sum up of why I actually got asked you to come on the podcast in that whole uh, introduction, because there's just so many different things uh, to talk about, and I think that need to be talked about. Yes. And I know I don't understand uh, a lot of uh, a lot of what's going on, like. Um, but before we get into that, so you, you did dip into Protestantism for a while. And yeah, for about three years. What what in you know in my high school years between about the ages of say fifteen and eighteen. Yeah. Okay. What was it? That I was did? very I was very smitten with the sort of Bible prophecy, Jesus is coming soon kind of message, what we call uh, uh-huh. dispensationalism. And boy, I was convinced Russia was going to invade Israel and the whole end was near. And and there you go. But I, I gradually saw the silliness of that. Oh, wow. I mean, because I think like often when I know I think about Protestantism, I think of like one thing, but there's always so many different facets, especially within like um, when you talk about Protestantism, just as a concept, there's so many different denominations and variations. Well, yeah, it was very eye-opening to me to realize as I matured intellectually that that version of Protestantism was not even really very historic or mainstream, mm-hmm. even within Protestantism, you know, that Presbyterians mm-hmm. and Methodists and others would would very much look down their noses at that kind of uh, born-again fundamentalism mm. uh, as not not being really part of, uh, part of their tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Uh leading up to my conversion one of the things that did put me off becoming a christian uh was the fact that there's just so many different denominations that all seem to be like oh yeah yeah be a christian oh but not that one over there and not that one over there (laughs) it's this one i'm like why you know uh if you're all following the same scriptures it doesn't matter and eventually um what drew me to catholicism is just um the depth and uh i just felt it's a lot more substantial like whenever i had a question I got an answer, but then I also had more questions, and it just kept me, you know, drawing me in. And I'm not much of a bookworm, so uh, that uh, the the idea of the Second Vatican Council documents was terrifying, and I still really haven't dipped into them too much. But um, yeah, just yeah. Like, I found that whenever I spoke to Catholics, there was there was there was so much more depth there. Well, I think that's the key. I mean, there's a two thousand year intellectual tradition that stands behind Catholicism. And uh, it's that's what drew me back into it. It's like I said, I read myself back into the faith. And one of the things that struck me was that all the questions that I had as a modern person had actually already been somewhere addressed, especially by the early church fathers. Reading the early church fathers just blew me away because I had bought into this narrative that said there's the scriptures and then there's kind of 1500 years of a sort of corruption and nothing. And then we get the true church retrieved. And so then I went back and read the early church fathers and I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. This is not a corruption of the gospel at all. And there was a depth there, a richness there that uh, Protestantism does not have, generally speaking. Mm. Uh, in fact, 
most Protestant theologians today, worth their salt, are rediscovering the fathers, even rediscovering Thomas Aquinas. There's some very fruitful things going on in certain Protestant theological circles uh, that are that are very encouraging. I think. Mm, mm. So did you, did you start when you decided to reading? You read yourself back in. Did, did you start with the Church Fathers? What did you start reading that led? No, you... actually, it's 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 interesting. Evangelicals here in the United States, anyway are very fond of C.S. Lewis, and they were always mm. pushing, you know, C.S. Lewis. So I was reading a lot of Lewis, and then Lewis mentioned this guy, this this other British writer named G.K. Chesterton, ah. who was a Catholic, as you know. And so I started reading Chesterton, who was a Catholic. I, well, this is really interesting. Then Chesterton mentioned this guy, uh, Newman, <laughs> John Henry ah. Newman. So I started reading Newman. So it was, I had a very sort of Anglo experience here, you know, Lewis to Chesterton to Newman, the Oxford movement. And it was reading Newman that made me realize I need to read the Church Fathers. Right. And so that's, I just sort of went to the library and started pulling books out that were collections of writings, you know, selections from the Church Fathers, that kind of stuff. And so as a young, like 18 year old uh, kid, I was just, you know, just, did, I was in pig heaven. And uh, I didn't really get introduced to Augustine and Aquinas and some of the sort of big time, specifically Catholic guys until later in my intellectual formation and that then sort of just sealed the deal for me so that that's my intellectual journey right there yeah man i mean because uh c.s lewis i can probably handle like i say i'm not much of a bookworm um uh, i only i only ever tried reading uh chesterton's um what's it father um the mystery novels what's his name father brown or something Father Brown, yeah, yeah, Father Brown, and I'm just not into mystery novels. But like, I've tried Newman, and he's just, you know, it is it is quite an intellectual, um, you know, task to, uh, to 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 take on the concepts and to even just reading him, um, I found uh, quite difficult. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it can be. I mean, uh, I used to assign. Uh, Lewis and Chesterton to my students and I thought well these are very accessible guys and only to discover that my students did not find them quite as accessible as, as I did so um, you say that like you know even your students were struggling with uh, Chesterton and uh, was it Newman you were saying um, what would what did you what what's a more did you learn was more accessible uh, for people like maybe myself that um need something to lead us, lead us up to uh, Newman and Chesterton? Oh, uh, actually nothing. Uh-huh. I, I stuck, I, I, I pretty much stuck with Lewis and Chesterton and, and authors like that. Mm. And there, there are a few, uh, you know, and it, because remember, I was using them as textbooks in a classroom, mm. which meant that my lectures were designed to help them understand and guide them through the readings. Uh, now, as for what I might give to somebody uh, who is for whom Lewis and Chesterton are still a bit erudite, just to sort of read on their own, um, I'd have to, I don't know, I'd have to give that some thought. Uh, some there's a lot of good popular stuff out there right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it I don't know. I've always just found Lewis to be whenever somebody wants an introduction to Christianity, I sort of here read some c.s lewis mm, i think there and, probably is uh, also an I, element of uh we need to challenge ourselves to and it, it you know it, growing has pains they call it growing pains and i think that happens intellectually as well you need to 
force yourself to yeah. try something a bit difficult to go deeper eh? well, here here in the in the united states there's a couple of things that i would recommend uh, i don't always agree with him theologically or even with his style but a very very popular american author uh, in terms of basic understanding is a guy named scott hahn uh, who teaches at a place called Steubenville, Ohio, University of Steubenville in the United States, uh, Franciscan University. And uh, his books, he's a convert from Protestantism, mm. I believe Presbyterianism. And his books really are very geared towards getting people to understand the very basics of the Catholic faith with a scriptural foundation and a scriptural focus. Mm. And a lot of people have found his books very helpful. Scott Hahn, H-A-H-N. Mm. Then, of course, there is the Word on Fire ministry here yeah. in the United States run by Bishop Robert Barron, and he has produced a lot, not just him speaking, but a lot of other people mm. who work for him. He has produced a lot of videos in particular uh, that people can access via YouTube or, or by going to the Word on Fire Institute webpage, and those are all geared towards a basic introduction to the faith. Uh, the, the series that made him famous was a series, simply a, a video series called Catholicism. It's a 10 part video series, but it also then has a book that, mm. that goes with it. So if you don't want the videos and you just want the book, then order Robert Barron's Catholicism. Uh, and that is very accessible mm. uh, to an average person. So much so, in fact, that the videos in his book are often used in sort of, uh, you know, instruction in the faith classes catechism classes for new converts to the faith mm. so th those are two sources you know I, yeah. I i would especially recommend the word on fire sources especially some of the videos which are excellent yeah that's actually kind of where i started on my more when i started reading um about the faith i i, I i'd seen a few of his clips and i actually uh kind of met him once in london um and I sent a few clips of videos and I, and I liked them. And then I saw someone was giving away the Catholicism book. And I was like, you're giving this away? I'm taking it. And then I just thought, <laughs> I thought I'm just going to read it. And I remember getting up to the chapter that started talking about Thomas Aquinas. And I was like, I've, I've never been good at philosophy. But you know what? I'm just going to read it. And whatever sticks, sticks. And um, yeah, that's what led me on the path to start. Well, actually. did any of it stick? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know about the philosophy stuff. I remember Thomas Aquinas' name was mentioned. Uh, but yeah, I... Uh, I'm not good at retaining information always. I remember the gist of things, and that's what keeps me going. Um, well, but that's good. One of the things that, um, when I was started looking into you, one of the things that I found was quite odd about you is you're a Catholic voice in, in on the internet, and you're actually uh, in favor yeah. of Bishop Barron. It seems that everyone's got a problem with something he says. Uh, and, uh, you know, I watched an yeah. interview where you were with Bishop Barron talking about uh, all these sorts of things. Uh, so that's great because I'm a yes. massive fan of him as well. Well, unfortunately, he's a lightning rod of criticism from both the right and the left. The radical traditionalists hate his guts. In fact, there's a recent essay put out by a radical traditionalist that is just it's making the rounds on Facebook here in the United States, just vile and vicious insinuations against him personally and so forth uh, based on who he's chosen to associate himself mm. with. Uh, which is very pharisaical, right? Because yeah. some of the people that he's retrieved and helped to convert and now works for him, you know, used to be sinners or something. Oh, what is he doing associating with? I mean, my goodness, do they not hear themselves? Yeah. I mean, Christ associated with sinners in order to convert them, and that's mm. what Bishop Barron has done. 
but also he's criticized from from the left because they don't think he speaks out enough on critical race theory and black lives matter and mm. racial issues and and the thing is they all they all go after him because he has become the most popular multimedia platform in the United States right now and actually around the world uh, in the especially in the anglo sphere and increasingly in the uh, spanish speaking sphere and because of his popularity he has become sort of this well you should use your platform for this and mm. everybody's got their own hobby horse right everybody's got their own agenda and they think because he's so effective and so popular why aren't you pushing this agenda why aren't you pushing that agenda mm. but i see what he's doing is an attempt to evangelize uh, in in some sense, uh, the non the, the sort of non practicing Christian world. In other words, I think his message is geared towards disaffected Christians to sort of re evangelize them and bring them in back into the church, and and that requires a deft touch uh, that a lot of people on the left and the right don't have. And so yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of his. I'm aware of every single criticism people bring against him. And I think all of it is just nonsense. I know mm -hmm. the man personally. I've known him for years. He's a great guy. And uh, it really enrages me when I see some of the extremely unfair criticisms that are sent his way, especially by the rabid uh, traditionalists who have it out for him. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I remember, like, I see a few criticisms of him, but I've never heard anything that really holds up. But... I often think of there's um I watched an interview with Quentin Tarantino and he was talking about some criticisms he got and said, well if I had wrote this script I would have done this and he's like, oh right, but you didn't, did you? You didn't write the script, and so you couldn't <laughs> exactly. do what I did. And it's like we can always think of yeah. how we could better something else, but you don't have the ability to because you haven't put in the work. Uh, but yeah, and I think that yeah. it also draws a very important distinction that I don't think is always made is like there is there seems to be a real close connection between like the political and the 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 kind of trying to evangelize uh i've often been told yes. like oh you should you should talk more about uh, climate change on your podcast and i'm like i don't know anything about climate change and how does that going to talk about the gospel and so like could you talk yeah. to that bit like you know how do we manage that because it's a very political world we're in nowadays and how do we navigate what's political what's evangelical and and how do we choose what's best for the gospel i mean that that's an that's an enormously you know complex question right up front just on the face of it you know what is the interface between the gospel and the political domain i mean we could talk for years <laughs> daily on that topic and the church has adopted various stances to that question over the centuries uh, but in our time in our day i think we just need to acknowledge that our political culture from a Catholic perspective is deeply wounded and deeply broken and is a very poor vessel uh, for communicating uh, Catholicism. And so there's there's actually, I think, very little, very little common cause that that Catholics, uh, you know, devout Catholics can make with a lot of lot of what goes for political culture in, in the modern world. And and so I, I think that the old days of this great sort of coming together of throne and altar of Christianity and the culture and government and so on, I think those days are done. Maybe those days will come back, but they're not here right now, at least not in North America, not in Western Europe, not down where you are. Um, that notion of a cultural Catholicism that then is ensconced in the political apparatus of the state 
is a dead idea for our time. So yeah, what we have to do now, and this is what Bishop Barron is up to what I'm doing with my blog, is we have to be about the business of, of evangelizing the culture, one heart at a time, and of, in a sense, re-evangelizing ourselves, of getting ourselves to see that one of the reasons for the historic failure of Christianity to perdure as a cultural influence is precisely because Christians, in a lot of ways, stopped acting like Christians uh, and gave up on the universal call to holiness, gave up on the idea of, of charity towards our neighbor and and simply bought into the modern construct of affluence and consumerism and started acting no differently than their contemporaries at best. And so there's a need to re-evangelize ourselves, to re-evangelize the world. We need to learn how to walk before we run and any notion that we, we can do anything beyond sort of teaching ourselves to walk again, I, I think is naive. Mm, man, that's like so much there. Like, I think that's everything that we want to accomplish within uh, Evangelion and and, and uh, right. through the podcast. And actually, I was talking to an, a friend of yours um, yesterday, uh, Father Harrison, and I was reading... Oh, Father Harrison Eyre, I love him. Yeah, I was I was talking to him about his book Mysterion, and one thing that really struck me is the third chapter on modernism. And whenever, when, whenever someone mentions an ism, I'm like, okay, turn off, they're talking about something abstract. But as he was describing this, I was like shocked because I realized how much of this I had taken on in myself just through being part of the culture. It's like, oh no, I'm a modernist. You know, yes. not by choice. It's not, you know, I'm not going to be like, I am a modernist, but like it's a. Uh, you're, it's you're a an modernist by osmosis. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you were talking, and we're, we're going to go into this now on like the universal call to holiness. Uh, it's just, yes. it, that's the answer. Hey, by the way, can I can I interrupt you for a second? Go for it. It, it, it just. It just struck me when you, you know, I interviewed Father Harrison with regard to his book Mysterion as well. And we were talking earlier about what books would I recommend to an average reader. That's one of them. That's yeah. a very accessible book. I would recommend it to. So anyway, go ahead with your question. Yeah, definitely. It changed my life. Uh, just first three chapters. And that's how far through I am. But um, yeah. yeah, I think. Um, so, yeah, the universal call to holiness is the answer to that question on discerning what the political is and how to affect the world and how to evangelize is, and it's that first, it's like look into yourself and let's live out this universal call to holiness. Um, so could you like maybe start, start us off? Like what is the universal call to holiness? Where do we get it from? Uh, yeah. And how do we do it? Well, okay. Well, it just basically goes back to the gospel where Jesus tells his disciples, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that seems like, well, wait a minute, we can't be perfect, but it sort of misses the point that Jesus is making, which is final union with God, which is the goal of the incarnation and salvation and resurrection and ascension and all of us being adopted as sons and daughters in, into Christ, into the mystical body. All of it has the goal of what the Greeks call theosis or divinization. You know, that as Athanasius said, God became human so that humans could become like God. Mm. You know, that's not pantheistic or idolatrous. That's that's orthodoxy. And that requires sanctity. It requires because nothing unholy can pass into God's presence, which is why that process has to begin now. Not we don't wait until we're after death. 
All right. The process of sanctification, the process of growing in holiness is a Christian obligation that that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And Christ didn't just call a few select men to lead lives of holiness. His entire messianic message was a revolution of the laity. He was taking this very exclusivist understanding of holiness that one found within Judaism with its connection to ritual purity laws and, and so on and a kind of ethnocentrism and he was universalizing it and, uh, and saying that the, the true heart and soul of Judaism is this universal message of the, of the God who embraces us all. And we are all called to holiness. And then you get the recipe for that call in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning with the Beatitudes and then on through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and over time, the church, in a sense, bureaucratized, professionalized, and domesticated the Sermon on the Mount by saying, now, that's kind of the path of perfection. That's the path of the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And that's primarily for monks and nuns and, and, and celibate priests. That's not for the average person. The average mm. person just needs to follow the Ten Commandments. It's called the Way of the Commandments, which is why that lay person's station in life, married state of life, the Way of the Commandments was thought to be an inferior state of life to those religious in religious orders who can lead the evangelical councils and can truly be holy. And unfortunately, this this dualism did enter into the life of the church, such that by the time you get into the 20th century, the idea had crept into many quarters of Catholicism that holiness was a kind of ideal that none of us can really attain. And so it just sort of fell by the wayside. The Second Vatican Council, following theological developments in the middle 20th century, and people like Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, uh, said, no, 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 no. We're all called to holiness, as Christ showed in the Sermon on the Mount and in his entire message. And the council, the council went on to say, specifically in the council document, Lumen Gentium chapter five, goes on to point out that, that lay people are just as capable of holiness in their own state of life as priests and nuns are in theirs. Mm -hmm. It's just in a different modality with a different set of circumstances. And this, according to the council, this universal call to holiness is then the absolute key to the renewal and the reform and the revival of the church which had become a bit sclerotic and clericalized and moribund with a big wall built around it to hold off modernity. We need lay people on fire for the faith to go out into the world as a leaven. The primary evangelizers, therefore, of the world are going to be lay people in their station in life. Mm. And so, for example, if, if, if you want to know what a Christian psychology looks like, then what you need to do is to find a Christian psychologist who has pursued the path of holiness, who can then speak to the interface of those two aspects of his or her life. Likewise, what does a Christian economics look like or a Christian sociology? In other words, all the secular disciplines. What does a, what does secular plumbing, I mean, Christian plumbing look like or Christian, you know, economics and so on? You need to find Christians, Catholics, pursuing the path of holiness who are actually economists and plumbers and electricians and, you know, politicians. And they will then show you what a Christian economist looks like. Mm. And, and that is the message of the Second Vatican Council, because and you alluded to it earlier. You know, what do you know about climate change? 
Well, what does Archbishop Vigano know, know about the COVID virus? When did certain prelates in the Catholic Church become epidemiologists? You know, wh when did they become climate experts? They're not. And so all too often the church pontificates on things over which it has absolutely no magisterial authority and no particular area of expertise. And that's a form of clericalism. When the church sort of presumes to speak all the time on these various issues, we it, absent the input from lay people who are experts in those things. Uh, anyway, I'm uh, sort of off on a ramble here now, but but you get the gist of, of, of what I'm talking about. Mm, no, and that's really beautiful, and it, like I think excellently articulated of um, that call to holiness because I've definitely experienced that myself in dealing with like priests and doing ministry in the past. Of like, I've been uh, I've heard had lay people and myself even calling for like um, more Eucharistic adoration or more prayer, uh, organized prayer and. Right. often i'm met with the it's like you know we can't force the lay people to pray so you know it's that's not you know the religious do the prayers of the church it's for them which you can do if you want but we can't make you and it's like yeah but if you don't offer it we can't have it you know if we don't get taught right. we can't do it and i think it's you know i hear a lot about um often people say things like the the future of the church is it's going to be a lay church um does that fit in with this universal call to holiness or is that like a, a misunderstanding no no i think that's absolutely true i think uh the the day and age of a hyper clericalized church is, is at least temporarily over if for no other reason that there just aren't that many clerics anymore and i think that maybe perhaps one of the reasons why the holy spirit has allowed the crisis of numbers and the priesthood to reach the the crisis stage that it is is almost to force the church to realize that the laity are an untapped resource. Now, to say that the laity are the future of the church, I think we do have to be careful. The Catholic Church has always been and should always be a church centered on the sacraments, and only a priest can confect the sacraments of, say, confession, Eucharist, and so on. And that has to be emphasized. I'm not trying to laicize those things in a Protestant mm. fashion. Uh, that being said, the sacraments are there to create sanctity within the lay person and to bring that sanctity out into the world. Uh, and I think there's simply an increasing awareness that, that that is the case, that the church is a missionary activity and the primary missionary people are going to be lay people themselves out there acting in the world. So yeah, I, I think the future is with uh, laity realizing that, but the laity have to have leadership and they have to have uh, you know proper instruction. You mentioned prayer. Yeah, we have to pray. Uh, it's not all an activism. Uh, if we don't, if we don't have time to pray, then we're too busy, mm. because prayer is not simply the enclave of a few elect and elite spiritual athletes. Prayer is what Christ calls all of us to. And if you don't pray, uh, then you don't really have the life of God within you very much. Not in any introspective or deeply deeply convicted way i am you you have to find time to pray and i think the church needs to make that more available as you mentioned with like eucharistic adoration things like that mm, mm. yeah because that that's a a blessing of the second vatican council the introduction of more eucharistic adoration from what i've heard uh that's something that came out of that uh, but bringing it back on oh, to true. pardon no that's true that mm. uh uh, there wasn't, believe it or not, a lot of Eucharistic adoration before the Second Vatican Council. It was after the Council that it came more into vogue. 
Mm. Um, I feel like if I carry on down this, we'll go down a very hairy path. So I want to keep it on track with the, um, the universal call to holiness. So you were saying that like holiness is that seeking God and then going into the world and being whatever you are, and that will bring others to Christ. Yes. Uh, but I still think holiness seems to be this very abstract concept. Now, like I feel like if you were to say to someone like, I want to be holy, you're like, all right, holy, then now, you know, you're special. I'm not, I get it. Uh, and I feel like that's obviously a wrong attitude to have. So what is holiness? Holiness is nothing more than the life of charity. Uh, the, the God is love. God is charity. As St. Paul says, you can have faith, you can have hope, but if you don't have love, don't have charity, then all of it's pointless and all of it's meaningless. He said there's faith, hope, and charity. These all abide. But charity is the greatest of those three virtues. Uh, and that is what is meant by we are meant to participate in the divine life. And the divine life is Trinitarian love communicated to us. And therefore, the surest sign that you are on the path of sanctity is that you have slowly purged your life of all of those things uh, that cling to us and that we cling to that hold us back from being loving, charitable people. And by charitable, I don't mean almsgiving or those sorts of things. It means in every aspect of your day-to-day -day life, which is why it's, it's not an option. If we conceive of holiness as this sort of romanticized, holy card cutout image of a, some saint, you know, in some cloister someplace, then you're right. It's, it's just an abstraction for the average lay person. How do I treat my spouse? How do I treat my children? How do I treat my friends? How do I treat my coworkers? How do I treat perfect strangers that I meet on the street? Uh, these, these are the barometers of our holiness. Uh, whether or not we're kind to people, whether or not we will go out of our way to shed of our, ourselves of our selfish dispositions in order to give of ourselves fully and completely uh, to other people. You know, we all know people like this. It's not rocket scientists, you know. We all know people in our lives, oh man, that guy's great. He'd give you the shirt off his back. We need this and that and the other thing done. Oh, I know, call Pete. He'll do it. That guy's great. You know, we all know people. And then we all know people that are grumblers. We all know people that are extremely enclosed within themselves, just very selfish and self-centered. And they, 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 they basically alienate everyone around them. Nobody wants to be around them. They're annoyingly grating sorts of people. You, that's the antithesis of holiness right there. Now, some of these are just personality dispositions uh, that we all struggle to overcome. I'm famous for being a bit of a curmudgeon, but, but you get my point. Holiness is nothing more than selfless giving of ourselves, charity, love. Mm. That's holiness. That's it in a nutshell. That's why when Jesus was asked, what is, in a sense, the essence of the law? You know, he, he unhesitatingly said, oh, that's easy to love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. In that is all the law and the prophets. And therein mm -hmm. is the entirety of the gospel as well. Love, mm -hmm. love, love God, love neighbor. That's holiness. Mm -hmm. So I feel like cause, um, so every year I do this uh, program called Exodus 90. I don't know if you've heard about it. But basically what I do, it's it's an ascetical uh, like 90 day program. We do prayer, asceticism and fraternity. And one of the reasons I do it is I find myself by the end of Advent, I've got myself in a bit of a rut. Uh, I'm doing things that are good and God wants things that are good. But the things that I'm doing are good are eating more ice cream and watching more TV, which are good. Um, <laughs> and what I've noticed is 
uh, I find it very hard to get out of that mentality. So Exodus having a program that has a, yes. a way of life and it's, it starts on a certain day and ends on a certain day is really helpful. But for those people that don't want to do something so intense as Exodus 90, like, have you got any uh, tips on how to get yourself out of the funk? So I want to live a more charitable life. I want to live out that uh, call to holiness, to love everybody and to be like, this uh, character Pete, you're saying, give the shit off your back, but I'm a bit of a, as you say, curmudgeon, and I mean, I'm a bit uh, of a slob, and it's it, it just seems like almost impossible to get there. Do you have any tips? Yeah, there's an inertia there. Well, first off, let's back up a second. There's three stages in the spiritual life, according to all the sort of traditional masters of the spiritual life. The first stage is the purgative stage, where we purge ourselves of these sorts of usually base, you know, what do you want to call it attachments to various pleasures in life which are good in and of themselves but which hold us back from going to the next step which is once you purge yourself of these kinds of uh, sinful attachments you then reach a certain enlightenment of the mind a certain illumination as they call it so it's the illuminative stage and all of a sudden now you're reading the scriptures and praying with more illumination and then the final stage is unitive the unit where you feel one with God. That's what the mystics sort of encounter. And there's a fluidity in all three phases. You can go forward and backwards and so on. Most of us, as you just said, and myself included, are stuck in the purgative phase where we're just constantly trying to rid ourselves of the various things that, that hold us back. And it's, it's because all of these creature comforts to a certain extent are good things. I love ice cream too, by the way. I love my nightly bourbon. Uh, I, I like my leisure time and so but it can lead to and those things are all decent and good and wonderful in and of themselves but they create an inertia within us the sin comes in when we when we land upon those things and simply settle on that level and say this mm -hmm. is good enough this is who I am and I don't need to strive for anything higher and that's why that's where ascetical disciplines like Exodus 90 come in that's why in Advent and Lent, we have these preparatory sort of ascetical pen penitential seasons where we are reminded of the need to sort of rise above these things. And it is difficult to do. And so I would, my, I can only give the advice that I sort of give to myself. Motivation is created by doing. And what I mean by that, for example, I'm a blogger, I'm a writer, I'm also writing books for various publishers. And so I, I have to get up in the morning and I have to write. But I'm also a procrastinator. And I'll say, well, let me check Facebook first or let me check my email first or let me make something to eat first or let me go to the grocery store first. And all of a sudden, hours have gone by and I haven't written. And, and all of a sudden, I'm realizing, ah, I don't want to really write today. And, and then the pattern gets repeated the next day and the next day. And you suddenly realize, okay, there's only one way to overcome the inertia of doing something uh, that in a sense you keep procrastinating and that's just to do it. Mm. And when I, when I realize, for example, that if I force myself to sit down at the computer in the morning and say, okay, chap, write something. Then I find eight hours later, I've written something and I haven't even blinked twice. And I realize that once, you know, in other words, once the train starts going down the hill, then it goes on its own momentum. And that's, that's the problem. People need to get over that first hurdle. 
that first hurdle of putting away the ice cream, getting off the couch, shutting off the TV, turning off the iPad, that first hurdle and to say, what, what is it that I should do today to, to, in a sense to increase my prayer life, to increase my spiritual life, to increase my, my understanding of the faith? I'm going to do that. It, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's like I said before, it's not rocket science. And any good psychologist will tell you that oftentimes the best way to overcome spiritual or just psychological inertia in order to avoid that kind of procrastination is to just do it. And that requires a certain courage, which is why holiness is not easy in, in its initial phases. You've got to have the guts. You've got to have the courage. You've got to have the motivation to at least start. And there's no magic pill here to swallow. I can't give any advice here that says, if you try this technique or that technique, that'll get you going. No, you just need to do it. And it doesn't have to be anything tremendously rigorous or stupendous or earth-shaking. Something small. Start with something small. Mm -hmm. Like, I hate exercising. But I discovered that, okay, if I force myself to start just walking around the block a few times a day, all of a sudden I like it. All right. And, and so there's, there's learning and doing and there's motivation in the doing. But you have to start. Mm. And, and that's something nobody else can do for you. And therein simply lies I to the value of prayer. Prayer can motivate you to do that. Mm, yeah. Well, I was thinking when you were saying that, like a, a lot of what you're talking about, it, it requires a bit of reflection. It's like, okay, what? What's the things like, like you say, I eat ice cream every night. So, okay, how can I stop doing that? Well, stop buying it. Um, <laughs> then you don't have it in the house. and Or like, you know, um, but you might even not realize that that's the problem. You might just have this sinking feeling that I don't feel very good at the moment. My life's rubbish. And the best place to find out what we need to do is to turn to the Lord. So having that uh, time of contemplation and prayer, yes. which I, I'm not great at, I've got to admit, you know, and contemplation looks different for everyone. I've got a bit of ADHD. So sitting down, isn't going to happen for me, but um, yeah, like music and yeah. stuff. Uh, and so like that contemplation helps you reflect. Yeah. Yeah. It helps you reflect Whatever on what you, you need do. to like, do. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a big contemplative prayer guy myself. I, like I said, I'm a library rat. I'm an intellectual and academic, you know, an intellectual nerd. But I find that, to me, pr my prayer is most fruitful when I'm reading something deeply moving and powerful. For other people, it's, it's, it's music. Other people, it's art. Uh, it doesn't have to be sitting quiet in a corner with your legs crossed in the, in the lotus position, <laughs> you know, with a mantra and trying to quiet your mind. Uh, use your imagination. Whatever tool is there that lifts your spirit out of yourself, and that's... You know, the, the word ecstasy comes from two words, ecstasis, which means to stand outside of yourself, to go outside of yourself. This is the essence of holiness, to extend yourself, to go outside of yourself for the love of others and so forth. But it begins with an extension of yourself into prayer itself. And therefore, whatever tool you have that allows you to forget yourself for a second and simply extend yourself, at, whether it's music or poetry or reading or ballet, I don't care what, what it is, do that. Mm. If that's your prayer, then pray that. Mm. There, there's no set form to, to, to any of them. I mean, the scripture is important, reading the church fathers and stuff, that's nah, all important, but it's not the essence of it. It's not the essence of it. Mm, yeah, that, those stuff can help you go deeper though, but you need to have something to go deeper in to yeah, start off with. Because I can read scripture until the cows come home, but if I don't have the spiritual eyes to read the scriptures properly, 
then I'm not then I'm eventually reading scripture is going to fall by the wayside. Ah, mm. oh, that's boring. I don't understand it. It's a bunch of gobbledygook from 2000 years ago. Mm. But so you have to read scripture in conjunction with other forms of prayer. Mm. I mean, the monks called it Lexio Divina, sort of, you know, sort of divine reading, reading of divine things. Uh, and, and so it's sort of a chicken and an egg question. Do I read scriptures first, then pray, pray, then read scriptures? You just sort of do both at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, something we were talking about with my fraternity this morning was um, about, you know, what you end up doing is what you end up spending your time looking at. And uh, like one of the biggest yes. things that people find hard to kick is, you know, scrolling through the phone. No one actually enjoys it. They just find themselves doing it. And the next thing they know, it's been a couple of hours. Um, so yes. what we were saying is it rather than saying, I, I want to stop doing that. You know, instead of filling your life with a series of no's, start filling your lives with a series of yeses. Uh, for example, um, my wife just started this uh, stitching thing. She's got this little circle and she puts thread in it and it makes pictures and it's very nice. And she said, since doing that, she hasn't even had the desire to pick up a phone. And so she's kind of filled her life with a yes instead of like saying, okay, exactly. I'm not going to do that one thing. Yeah, it's sort of, it, you can't just pursue a life of negation, 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 especially if the things that you're negating are, like I said, fundamentally good in and of themselves, nothing immoral about, you know, eating ice cream or watching television, but insofar as they create an entropy within us, a spiritual downward spiral of laziness and procrastination and a settling for purely material comforts, then it's detrimental to spiritual life. But you can't just sort of go in and say, I'm going to get all this stuff out of my life now, and then I'll be okay. No, <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. to gradually, then you have, you have to gradually replace one thing that pleases you with another thing that pleases you, but that's on a higher plane that will help your spiritual life. So it's replacing a bunch of small goods with bigger goods and, and gradually growing into those bigger goods. But sometimes you do have to begin with just a simple negation. Like you said, when you go to the store, just don't buy ice cream. And I'm, I'm, as, addicted, I'm, a, I'm as addicted as the next person to my iPhone, which is why I absolutely forbid myself to bring it to church, to bring it to mass, because I, I discovered that I was constantly sneaking a peek at it all, all mm. during mass. I'll just check my email here while they're bringing up the gifts for the offertory. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate right. to that. Yeah, I can I relate to that. that. I did that, okay? Or the homily got a little boring. I'm just going to sneak at my Facebook likes right now, all right? And, and I said, yeah. you know what? This is insane. I, I, so I just forced myself not to bring my phone to church anymore. And then all of a sudden, I discovered, you know, I kind of like mass. It's not as boring as I thought it was. And this is great. And I got into it. And, you know, uh, and it was a simple thing of saying, I'm not going to bring my phone to church anymore. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm experiencing mass on a far – instead of bringing my phone, I bought some prayer books and I started reading some prayers before mass and after mass. And if my mind started to wander at mass, I would open the prayer book and read a couple of prayers that I had, you know, dog-eared that helped you focus at mass, uh, that were about focus at mass. And I found all of a sudden my participation in the liturgy was soaring and it all began with a negation. Don't mm. bring your phone to church. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah. So you, you begin by, I'm not going to buy the ice cream, but I have to do something. <laughs> I'm, what am I going to just sit and do yeah. nothing and just pine away for my ice cream? 
Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. You, you know, because eventually you're going to crack. Eventually, yeah, you're gonna say, I'm going yeah. back to the store. I need ice cream. You know, <laughs> I've done that too. Like I do, I do that all the time. Actually, so yeah, pure negation doesn't work. Yeah, I think, and I think what's really cool and what you were saying there is there was a a process, a kind of scaffolding of like, okay, first I realize this is wrong, and then I'm going to say no. But then what am I going to do? I mean, I I know yes. I can definitely relate to you with the the whole the phone thing. Uh, I didn't even think I got went on my phone much, but then when I do this night Exodus ninety program, it's like, oh wow, I've got I've got kids and they're actually really fun, <laughs> you know. And they're not as annoying yeah. when I'm not yeah. on my phone because it turns out the reason they're annoying is because I'm trying to avoid them and they're trying to play with me. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's like you right. just realize, oh wow, there's a whole world here that I'm just ignoring, and yeah, you get so much more out of life. Yeah. Uh, adding into this whole idea of taking on something new, you have something that's called a uh, Catholic worker farm, and you mentioned how it's about getting yeah. back to the land and learning skills. I feel like this is a good example of uh, a yes that we can be saying uh, to take place of a, a vice. We can be saying, okay, I'm going to get back into the garden. I'm actually going to try and grow something, and then that will take up our time. Could you right. tell, tell us a bit more about the worker farm and what you do and how it all works out? Yes, I mean, it does relate to what we were just talking about because one of the reasons that compelled both my wife and my wife also has a PhD in theology and professor and stuff, and uh, one of the things that compelled us is we were leading a very comfortable upper middle class life in the suburbs of Allentown, Pennsylvania, had a nice little tiny house in the woods and entertained friends and went to nice restaurants and took trips to Rome. And, you know, it was all nothing immoral about it, but it was all very, very, very comfortable. And I felt a certain spiritual entropy, felt like I really wasn't growing in the spiritual life uh, and then sort of grew lazy about the spiritual life. So one of the reasons why we bought the farm and, and move to it was precisely to force ourselves out of that cycle. Uh, our for our farm is a dump. Uh, we could only afford a really lousy farm in the sense of the farmhouse was falling apart. The land has got glacial rock on it that we had to reclaim and so on. But it was great, and and it forced us to be outside working with our hands, doing manual labor. Uh, but also to just not be doing certain things, not on our computers all the time, not going out to eat every night, not taking fancy trips, but attending to the land. And then, of course, part of the Catholic worker vision is hospitality. And so we would have all kinds of people come and visit us and uh, we would, uh, you know, cook for them and pray with them and, and so on. And you made all these new friends. Uh, and we just found that our time was suddenly filled with new friends, fellowship, hospitality, growing food for the poor, and so on. But then also teaching certain artisanal skills. Uh, so we have sheep, border lester breed sheep, which are known for their fleece, for their wool. And my wife shears the sheep. She processes the, the fleece uh, into basic raw uh, wool, and then she spins the wool into yarn and knits things. And But she also then has a whole school where she teaches people all of these very basic skills uh, that, that have been lost. You know, nobody makes their own clothes anymore. Nobody, nobody spins wool anymore or anything like that. You just buy it. You go to, you go to the store and you buy it. Uh, and that's what Peter Morn and the Catholic Worker Vision was about. There's, and it's not simply about survivalism or, or that kind of prepper nonsense. It's about 
having a sense of accomplishment, a sense of pride. There's something still important in this day and maybe especially in this digital day and age of doing things with your hands, learning skills, tactile skills that you can still do with your own two hands. And that's why we also teach people to do things like canned vegetables, canned tomatoes, how to raise a tomato. People think it's easy. It's not. Okay, and uh, how to raise chickens without them being eaten alive by every predator known to man, because everybody loves to eat a chicken, apparently. And, and, and so you, you, it's like magical when you see little kids come to the farm and they go into the chicken coop and they recover an egg from, from underneath an angry hen. And, and they see oh, this. This is where this is where eggs come from. Now, they know notionally, yeah, this is where eggs come from. But when you actually reach under a hen and grab an egg, now you really know where eggs come from. Or when you milk a goat or a cow, you, now you really know where milk comes from. And these are also very tactile skills uh, that people actually love to learn and to do. It's very spiritual. It's very therapeutic mm. to do things like that. This is why, by the way, there are therapy farms out there where people who have suffered, say, after coming home from war and they have post-traumatic stress syndrome and they're traumatized. There are all these therapy farms where, where these people go to live in order to do just this sort of thing, because there is something healing about nature, about the land, about learning tactile skills, about living a, a sort of rhythm of prayer life that is also part of the cycles of, of your day on the farm. Anyway, that, that's, that's what we do on the farm. And uh, we're also Benedictine Oblates. And so we do pray Liturgy of the Hours. We have a small chapel on the farm with the Eucharist reserved because uh, we have a co-owner of the farm. He's a priest. And, uh, and so we do Liturgy of the Hours in our chapel. And when people come to visit, we, if they want to, they can join us for prayer. We don't, we don't force anybody to pray, which is counterproductive. But anyway, that's what we do. Mm, it sounds really awesome and I want to start a Catholic worker farm but I live in a city and there's not a lot of land and the land that I do have is all clay so I can't grow anything uh, so if I where do, if I wanted to start getting more in touch with the ground because I, especially after my chat with Father Harrison I realized that like I think we have a to have a sacramental worldview is serious, essentially the way forward and that's about getting involved with nature and being able to see god through nature but we can't do that if we don't get involved with nature and the perfect way of doing that is cultivating a garden or growing especially growing food because then you're seeing the f literal fruits of it um so is yeah, do you have uh, any tips well yeah i mean uh if you do live in the city and you actually have a house that has some semblance of a yard uh and your soil is bad uh you can build what are called raised beds which is essentially you know uh a form which sits above the ground, usually some wood, two by fours, that sort of thing. And you and you go to the local store and you buy some decent dirt, right? And you put it in these forms. And that way you can avoid having to dig down into clay soil or rocky soil. And you can compost it and so forth. And it's amazing how much you can grow in a very, very little space. And there are all kinds of great books out there on the market right now about what's called intensive gardening, where you make use of small spaces. But even if you don't grow that much food, it's just the actual activity of doing it. Now, if you if you don't have any 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 ground at all, no space to make raised beds, you you have a little patio in in back. You can actually grow, for example, potatoes in in 
trash cans that have had holes drilled into the side. There's a whole method that you can grow a lot of potatoes in two or three trash cans that you filled with dirt, uh, metal trash cans, uh, or plastic ones that have holes in them. Uh, you can also just grow a few tomato plants in, in sort of in pots and that kind of thing. Uh, and once again, you're probably not going to grow a lot of food, but what you do grow yourself, then you can supplement by going to things like farmer's markets or just a local market that sells fresh produce and fresh flowers. There's, there's, have you ever been to one of those things? Like when I was in Rome in Campo de Fiore, it's, you know, one of the most famous open air sort of produce and flower markets in the world. You're spiritually uplifted just by going to those places. Uh, there's something invigorating about it. And you talk to the farmers themselves who have brought their produce in. And then between what you've been able to grow and your little trash can potato thing and what you pick up at the farmer's market, you learn to preserve and to can. And there's that's a tactile skill. And when you make like a pasta sauce or something like that of the um, tomatoes that you grew and then you canned yourself, put in jars, there's something, first off, it tastes better. Second off, there's something very rewarding about that. At least there is to a lot of people. To a lot of people, maybe not. Uh, but those those are some tips. There's also increasingly, at least here in the United States, especially in some of our more rundown cities with a lot of vacant lots, there are now a lot of cooperative gardens in some of the inner city neighborhoods where there's a big vacant lot and like 10 or 11 families will all go in on recovering that lot and building things there and cities allow them to do that. It's called urban farming. And you might get involved in something like that. So anyway, that's just a few tips in terms of just doing what you can to grow something to get your, you know, to get your fingers in the dirt. No, I think that's a great idea. And like, again, it's like we have to bear in mind because I think when like uh, we're quite utilitarian in our thinking sometimes, it's like, I'm only going to do this. I'm going to get something out of it. And you, when you think of gardening, you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to get something out of it. But as you said, growing a tomato isn't necessarily an easy thing. So you're going to be a lot of fail and it's going to be a lot of like, weeding and boring stuff but it's not about that oh, it's yeah. about saying yes to to god's creation opposed to yes to another few hours scrolling through your phone um oh, speaking yeah. of which we have some uh, listener questions uh if you've got some time I'd like to maybe touch on a few of those i have plenty of time yeah plenty of time okay cool cool so the first question we have here is from uh Reuven. so what was the purpose uh, oh this is about uh, the Vatican II council what was the purpose and nature of the Vatican II oh that's a complex question but uh, and people differ on that but from my perspective the central purpose of the second Vatican council was to uh, it was it was a pastoral council it was to revivify and rejuvenate and revive uh, the internal faith life of the church to revive the spirit of the laity in order to engage the modern world. In other words, the church wanted took a look at itself and said, we're very inward looking, we're very insular, and we need, uh, we need to look more outward. So it was a missionary council, and I think the council simply understood, in order for us to grow in the spiritual life, we have to go out to the world, and we have to be uh, real heralds of the gospel in the world. In that sense, the theology of the church had become very detached from spiritual life and spiritual things and pastoral things. Very detached. It was very dry, very arid, very deductive, very philosophical. And not even theologians wanted to read most of it because it was so boring. 
It was called neo-scholasticism. It was a kind of very dry form of doing theology. And the church wanted to create a new kind of theology that was alive, that was more evangelical, that was more filled with the mystery of God, the transcendence of God. You know, the old theology, the church had the equations. Vatican II wanted to put fire in the equations. It wanted to bring the equations to life. The old theology was like the skeletal structure. Vatican II wanted to put flesh on that structure. And and that enfleshing and that, that inflaming is what the council sought to do. Unfortunately, the council was a bit derailed afterwards by a lot of bad force. But I think that's that's why the council was called. It was called to light a fire within the mm. church. Yeah, it's interesting because you were mentioning earlier about, was it Lumen Gentium that talks about what the lay people can do and the fact that the lay people yeah. are uh, an untapped resource. And like, again, I haven't really uh, had the courage to try taking on. I actually tried reading Gaudium et Spes when I saw that's what your um, blog was called. And I just found it a bit, right. a bit boggling. So I'm going to have to go back to that a few times. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think there's so much that we talk when people talk about Vatican II, they talk about the spirit of the council and it, they often use Vatican tool to as a, as, as a tool to uh, do whatever they want. It's like, Oh, I can, I can yeah, do this. Yeah. I can do this. And it often only comes down to people like, Oh yeah, Vatican II ruined the mass. And uh, from what I've heard that like the, was it Sacrosanctum Concilium was actually the, the least debated uh, during the council. And it's become the most yeah. controversial since. It was the very first document the council put out, uh, and its recommendations for liturgical reform were things that many theologians had already been calling for, not wacko liberal ones, not wacko arch-right-wing ones, but middle-of-the-road good theologians who knew about liturgy, who were saying the old mass is great, the old Latin mass is great, but man, it needs some reforming. And so Sacrosanctum Concilium comes along and says, yeah, okay, here are some suggestions. This, these are the animating theological principles, and now here are some suggestions. But if you read the document, um, it still calls for Latin in the liturgy. It still calls for Gregorian chant and polyphony and things like that. It, it doesn't say that the priest should be facing the people. It doesn't say mass should be, ought to be, must be in the common language of the people. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, facing the people, praying in the vernacular. I, I actually prefer praying in my my. English language and not in Latin. But nevertheless, what came after the council in terms of the actual mass that we got, I think bears very little resemblance to what the Vatican Council actually specifically uh, suggested or called for. Uh, the post-conciliar liturgical renewal went way beyond, I think, what, what the council fathers envisioned. Mm, mm. Just uh, tapping into that, it's like, I guess... Uh... My question comes to mind from that is, is there anything that we can do as lay people? Um, because, I mean, I'm not a particular... I like the Latin Mass fine, but I don't think I'd ever attend one regularly. Um, but yeah, there, there is there is a, an issue that I've noted, and someone pointed out to me, is like, you go to a Latin Mass, it's the same everywhere. You go to a, like a, a Novus Ordo, and depending on the priest, you could get... You don't know what you're going to get. So it's, it's... You know, the readings are the same, but... Uh, he might skip a few prayers out. He might uh, walk into the uh, congregation like it's a crowd to give his talk, which is his sermon, and there might be like all sorts of different bells and whistles. Uh, is there anything as a lay people we can do if 
we want like a return to the sacrosanctum concilium mass or like at least a decrease of um what's happened since well yeah i i th obviously there have been a lot of liturgical abuses uh that crept in after the council after the after the introduction of the novus ordo and uh these are very regrettable things and and i wish I wish that the current pontificate would spend as much time trying to clear up those liturgical abuses as it has trying to go after the, you know, the Latin mass people with traditiones custodes. That, that being said, I'll, I'll say this. Yeah, there is a certain, um, there, is, there is definitely a uniformity to the traditional Latin mass no matter where you go. But uniformity is not the same as true unity in Christ. It is probably the case that a higher form of unity in Christ includes a certain amount of pluralism underneath, where all kinds of different forms uh, abide together, and, and the hoyeristic principle that binds them all together is is the common Christological core. Uh, you know, the motto of the United States: "A pluribus unum," out of many, one. Okay, and so the imposition of one form from above isn't the same thing as real Christological unity. And so I think in some ways the, the plasticity of the Novus Ordo, which has led to so many abuses, can also be its strength. I would say, thank God the Mass isn't exactly the same uh, in, in Nigeria as it is in New York City. Uh, thank God it's not the same. Uh, as it is in Italy or in Japan. Sorry, my phone keeps going off. Uh, and so you get you get my point. Uh, and I think that's one of the strengths of the Novus Ordo is the ability mm. for the mass to be somewhat enculturated in slightly different ways. Now, that's not the same as, you know, when Father Skippy Toes decides that he's going to just ad lib his way through a liturgy, making up his own Eucharistic prayers, changing the creed, changing everything because he knows better than that's that's an entire that's. That's actually a violation of even the rubrics of the Novus Ordo. And, and so let, the problem with the Novus Ordo isn't necessarily its ability to take on slightly different forms here and there. The problem is the inability of the bishops to discipline priests that engage in liturgical abuses. Now, I'm 63. I go back all the way to remembering when, when the Novus Ordo was introduced. And I remember the, the silly season, as George Weigel calls it, of the 1970s and late 60s when all kinds of crazy stupidity went on. I remember a priest uh, in the 70s who was just a, you know, a white guy who was sent to a Vietnamese parish in my hometown, a lot of Vietnamese refugees in my hometown after the end of the Vietnam War. And so he thought that he'd be relevant, and so he decided he was going to consecrate rice, crakes, rice cakes and sake instead of bread and wine. Half of the Vietnamese congregation walked out and that's the kind of and that priest was never disciplined the bishop never said to him don't ever do that again and people complain and the bishop sort of said well you know well father so-and-so is that's the kind of stupid thing he does but that that's not a stupid thing that is an outrage mm. that a priest would feel the license to do something like so i lived through that i understand but those abuses are not not countenanced by the rubrics of the Novus Ordo. And so what we need is a greater liturgical discipline in the church, and that does have to come from above. That does have to come from Episcopal leadership, where if we're gonna say, we're gonna clamp down on the traditionalists because we don't like some of the things they're saying about Vatican II or whatever, then please, 
please, can we please start clamping down on, on all of the crazy masses from Father Crazy? Uh, and, and, and then I think a lot of people will be a lot happier with the liturgy that's out there. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm on a real rant now, but you get my point. No, I think it's all good things, and I think it's uh, stuff that people, maybe like myself, would like to hear because it seems, from my perspective sometimes, you either get rice cakes and sake or the, the TLM, and I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I, I, don't, I don't want either, yeah. really. Um, but, yeah, I think... Uh, there's a lot to a lot to digest there. Uh, we are getting a bit on, so I should probably uh, bring this to a close. Is there anywhere? So where where do people go if they want to find out more of your work and things that you've done? Well, then just uh, go to my blog page, uh, Gaudium et Spes, all one word: G A U D I U M E T S P E S. So it's Gaudium et Spes twenty two dot com. And uh, there's a lot of interviews from me on there, a lot of my blog essays, and uh, that's the best way to find out about me. Mm. And also, you've been on various podcasts, like I mentioned, Clerically Speaking, and you did an interview with Bishop Barron as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah, you can go on YouTube or go to the Word on Fire webpage, and you'll find uh, Bishop Barron Presents, and I'm one of, it's about an hour-long interview I did with Bishop Barron in California, and I, yeah, I've done podcasts with... Uh, Clerically speaking, a couple of ones here, you know, uh, uh, Creedle by a guy named Zach Crippen and, and, and a few others. I, I've done so many, I sort of forget. In fact, you, know, you and I had a conflict with your, your podcast because I was doing a podcast with another guy named Dom, and I actually confused the two Doms, and I thought, okay, well, I'm done with that podcast. And then you emailed me uh. and said, where are you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, wrong Dom. Oh, no. Uh, that's the idiot that I am. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of podcasts of me out there. I have a YouTube channel too with some of my interviews, so you can find my stuff there. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, and thank you guys all for listening. And again, remember, if you want to get involved more with what we do at Evangelion and Curiosity Catholic, check us out at www.evangelion.co.nz. Look for our blogs, for our podcasts, and if you're listening to us on a podcast app, please do give us a five star rating and. Uh, good comments on how good we are because we don't want any, any negative comments they don't help anyone so uh but anyway thanks for listening god bless stay curious and stay catholic <laughs>